This episode of The Orthodox Conundrum discusses sexual assault and rape and may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It's not he said, she said. There's a lot of forms of evidence that don't include video. There's rarely video of any crime, never mind a sexual assault. There are all sorts of forms of evidence that are accepted in a courtroom that don't involve video evidence of any of this happening. First of all, the pictures of the bruises that she took and the rape kit took are evidence. The rape kit is evidence. Outcry witnesses, evidence. Her therapist testimony, evidence. All these things are used all the time in court when these cases actually make it in, which is rare because a lot of people have these attitudes. But there are a lot of things that are considered evidence in sexual assault cases that don't involve photo or video evidence of the actual rape happening. And it's just infuriating when people say, oh, well, there's nothing we could do. How the hell are we supposed to know? We weren't in the room. That's what all the other evidence is for. They had access to it and they didn't ask for it. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On August 25th, 2021, the student newspaper at Yeshiva University, The Commentator, published an anonymous opinion piece entitled, I Thought Rape Culture Didn't Exist at YU Until I Was Raped. Its allegations were deeply troubling and charged that the university was worse than negligent in its handling of the serious charge that a Yeshiva College student on the basketball team had raped a student, the author, from Stern College. Sruli Fruchter, the commentator's editor-in-chief, gave me permission to read the article in full on this podcast. It reads, When I first heard about the conversations of rape culture on college campuses, I remember thinking to myself that surely rape could never happen at Yeshiva University. Then it happened to me this past year. In retrospect, I realized I had felt falsely protected by the morals and values that are the founding pillars of our institution. He was also a YU student, and he was on the men's basketball team. We agreed to hang out for a little while, and then he raped me. I still remember the shock I was in as I sat in the hospital the day after the rape. My heavy thoughts quickly changed from, it could never happen at YU, to, did this really just happen at YU? Part of me did not want to believe that it happened in our institution. But I am now forced to realize that a school like Yeshiva University essentially acts as a sanctuary for rapists, since the school system allows them to walk freely while forcing victims to suffer in silence and pain. I can sometimes be a very trusting person, especially when it comes to other people at my school, so naturally, I trusted him. I do not wish to go into details, but when he proceeded to hold me down and respond to my no with, but it's fun, I knew that I could no longer trust anyone at YU. The feeling of his body holding me down with no escape will forever be engraved in my mind. I explicitly told him I did not want to have sex. I remember telling him no, but that word had no meaning in his mind. He had already decided that he would not take no for an answer. But it's fun, he said. That clearly had more weight in his mind, since it was the last thing he said before he raped me. I won't lie. I felt completely lost and confused for the months following the rape. Immediately afterwards, I did not want to tell the school. I was extremely hesitant. Everything was so fresh. I was not even sure how to process it. I told some of my friends about what happened, but my mind still could not process the violation both my body and mind were going through. 
I only decided to take matters to the school after a professor yelled at me for missing a class and the work for that class. I simply wasn't sure how to explain to the professor that I was sexually assaulted two nights prior or that I had to go to the hospital to get a rape kit and have testing done during class. Overwhelmed with the situation and the inability to explain to the professor what had happened, I burst out in tears. The professor then proceeded to kick me out of class as they did not understand what was happening. That was when I knew I needed to face the discomfort of the situation and contact the school. When I reached out to Vice Provost Nissel's office, I decided to keep the perpetrator completely anonymous because at the time, I felt so much shame and guilt for what had happened. I felt guilty for being so trusting of my fellow YU student, and I felt bad for possibly ruining his life just as he had done to mine a few nights before. The school continuously asked me to give over the name as they claimed they could only help me if I gave it over. They claimed that giving over the name would not only ensure my safety, but the safety of other female students on campus. I finally gave over the name, and the school took over from there. They made me and my rapist sign a non-disclosure agreement before anything was done, which I was made to believe would have a positive outcome. I am limited in what I can share about the school's involvement because of that NDA. Since formal claims were made with the university that a member of the basketball team raped me, another player on the team decided to slut-shame me in a semi-public place, calling me a whore and slut. He told me, you're so dumb for letting this happen to you. As a member of another athletics team, this is extremely surprising considering the NCAA goes to great lengths for sexual harassment trainings. Sometimes I feel as if telling the school was almost as painful and hard to go through as the rape itself. I was alone and continuously had to give over my story, every single detail, some of which I could not remember because I felt as though my brain had partially shut off during the rape in order to protect myself. The same repression that protected me also made me feel dumb, as the school would ask the most technical of questions about the incident. It was a consistently unfortunate and overwhelming conflict. At one point, I was questioned by a man as to why I chose not to go to the police. I answered that I was scared, shocked, and alone. He thought it was ridiculous. The man made me feel bad about myself and second-guess myself because I had chosen not to go to the police or the school immediately after the assault. In truth, the outcome had proven why I wanted to keep silent. The duration and back and forth with the school felt like an eternity, and the time spent waiting for the school's response afterwards seemed like no less of an eternity. What I was made to believe would be a quick investigation extended over the course of three months in which every day I would anxiously refresh my email for any updates on what was going to happen. The process felt like a re-traumatization of what I had been through, like I was still holding on to the incident that I would do anything to let go of, and each day of waiting was just adding to that trauma. Finally, I received an answer, but not the one I was looking for. Vice Provost Nissel's office gave me the news that, quote, it's usually hard to prove something happened when only two people were there, end quote. This left me in complete shock. My heart sank. My world was turned upside down. I had developed a sense of hope that after months of worrying and pain, I might finally be validated and heard, but I was not. The same people who had constantly encouraged me to go through this painful process, all the while promising that I would feel safe again, seemed to have pretty much known from the start that nothing would come from it. The school has refused to do anything to make me feel safe on campus this upcoming year. Since getting the results, I've reached out multiple times concerning my safety in the library and other spaces on campus, as I will be on campus again this coming year. I've been told to just deal with it, 
and that nothing can be done by YU. Not one thing. The perpetrator is a player on the men's basketball team, so I also reached out to the athletics department. It turns out that it's simply not in the school's interest to prevent me from running into my rapist again. I am not sure why YU has chosen to ignore me and try to silence me, but I think it has to do with the reputation of the basketball team. After this happened, I started to realize that there is indeed a rape culture at Yeshiva University, and it enables rapists to rape without fear of getting in trouble. YU is not an exception to the rule. Its founding pillars have become weak. Every student deserves to feel safe on campus, and right now, they do not. The moral structure is collapsing, and I experienced one of its fatal breachings. Students are not safe on campus, and the school cares too much about its image to restore its values or do anything about it. Rape culture is real at YU, and it needs to be taken seriously. That's the entire article. The fact that the alleged perpetrator is a member of the YU basketball team, which has received a lot of press because of its 50-game winning streak, makes the story perhaps even more disturbing. To discuss this very troubling situation, I spoke with Shifra Lindenberg and Asher Lowy. Shifra is a Yeshiva University alumnus and a popular social media figure in the Jewish community. She's been active in trying to affect change at YU in the wake of these allegations. Asher Lowy is an abuse survivor and director of Zaka, which raises awareness about child sexual abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community, advocates for legislative reforms, and operates a Shabbat and Yom Tov mental health peer support hotline. As a final note before getting to the interview, let me point out that Yeshiva University styles itself as the primary representative of the English-speaking centrist Orthodox world of which I'm a part. While I never attended YU, I do look at YU in much the same way, as the flagship of the brand of Orthodoxy that I espouse. That reality only makes the importance of calling out its mistakes that much more acute. I hope we do so successfully in this podcast so that our community's institutions can live up to their mission of representing Torah in the spirit of Dracheha Darche Noam. Its ways are ways of pleasantness. Shifra Lindenberg and Asher Lowy, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you. I just read the story as the victim presented it, and she was also interviewed on the Jeff Flax live show on WSNR at 620 AM in the New York area, which is also live streamed on the TalkLine network. I learned a lot from listening to that interview, as well as from her article in The Commentator. So the facts as she presented them are already out there, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who have many questions that perhaps you can address. So even though I already mentioned your names, I'd like to ask you what your involvement is in this particular case. Shifra, can we start with you? How are you involved in this particular situation? So I'm involved because the victim and her friend reached out to me in the summer, even before the article came out about the situation, because through IU, I was a popular social media figure. So because of that, they came to me in terms of a strategy with how to deal with it. They did come to me after they signed the NDA. The victim spoke to me through the friend. So I don't know who the victim is to contain the anonymity, but they told me about the NDA. And originally they asked me, they're like, oh, can we post on your page and all that? And I said, look, if you want me to post on the page, if that's what you feel comfortable with, I can do that. But depending on what you want to do, I recommend you write a commentator article. And I've also been involved with a student union against stand up for survivors, a group against the sexual assault to try to create reform for justice for the girl. We'll talk about all those elements soon. Asher, how about you? What's your involvement in this situation? So my involvement is that in a lot of 
public cases, there are resources that are recommended to to victims who come forward, even anonymously, like like the victim did in this case. Um, Zaka is often re- recommended as a resource to be of any help that that we can. Um, so we were recommended, uh, and and the victim reached out, and I offered what advice I could. And I also offered what advice I could to the student organizers who were trying to make some reform at YU um, based on on my own experiences in the past. Okay, well, this situation, obviously, to say it's troubling is a huge understatement. I want to ask a few questions. Just there's so much going on and there's so many things which I find unclear and I'd like to know more about. So I'm going to open up with something which the victim wrote in the commentator. Here's the quote. They made me and my rapist sign a non-disclosure agreement an NDA, before anything was done, which I was made to believe would have a positive outcome. I am limited in what I can share about the school's involvement because of that NDA. She also said on the Jeff Lax Live show that after she signed it, the school did nothing. Let's start off with a very basic understanding of what is a non-disclosure agreement per se, and why would a school insist on its being signed? There are a lot of different ways that an NDA could be used in a in a case like this or in a case of sexual harassment or sexual assault in general. Um, often NDAs are used to cover settlements. They're 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 used uh, to basically ensure that the reputation of the person settling uh, is is not besmirched more than it already has been. Uh, it's often used as a condition for any sort of restitution or any sort of payment uh, that you know the the victim is going to get something in kind, and therefore they're going to keep quiet about about what what happened. On an institutional level, typically the motivation is to keep incidents like this quiet. Um, in this case, that's not what the NDA was was for. And um, it, it, I'm just going to say at the outset, despite what I'm about to say, uh, the NDA reflects poorly on Yeshiva University because they never should have used it in the first place. But uh, since I got permission to discuss the details of the, of the NDA from the victim, I'm going to go through it. Basically, the difference in process between the way the Title IX process generally works and the way it worked last year when when this was was reported to the YU administration is that the hearings instead of being held in person were being held over zoom and the process was taking place in a remote setting you know asher can i stop you there for a second i want to back up just for a moment can you first explain what title nine is that's obviously a big part of the situation please explain what title nine is then i'll let you continue just so our listeners understand so title nine is the part of u.s law that governs any type of discrimination on 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 a college campus uh and included in discrimination is uh sexual violence and gender violence and anything that falls under that rubric so title IX covers let's say if a student is uh is discriminated against at at a school they would go to the title IX office and file a complaint for discrimination the school would then investigate and and and, and do something about it uh since since sexual violence is considered a form of, of discrimination under title IX, if a student is sexually assaulted and for whatever reason isn't interested in pursuing at the time a criminal investigation, they, they have the option of going to the school and initiating a process whereby the school would investigate, uh, reach a conclusion, and then make a, a decision about what to do about the situation to, to ameliorate it, you know, for the benefit of the person who faced the violence. Okay, so what happened in this situation that was not by the book? Well... Uh, there's a lot that wasn't followed by the book. First of all, I mean, most notably, listening to the interview from uh, between the victim and Jeff Lax was the fact that the victim said that she had gone to the hospital and gotten a rape kit done. She had taken pictures of what of, of what had happened to her. And by the way, for those who don't know, 
Um, when you go to get a rape kit done at a hospital, aside from the medical exam itself and aside from the swabs that are taken, they also take photographs of, of the person's body, any area that may have been touched, any area that may have been affected. So the, there, there were photos that were taken as part of the rape kit, but the victim herself also took photos of herself. And those photos were available and the school was aware that the rape kit had been taken and they took no steps to get access to that rape kit. And the way they would have to get access is by asking the victim to, add, to give the hospital permission to relinquish it to the school. No one ever told her that. So she didn't know. As far as she was concerned, the hospital could have given it over, but because most people who go through this aren't experts in the process. They don't know what they have to do to make sure that schools can get access to that information. The school never told her to give her permission to the hospital. And then the school claimed that they couldn't get access because she had never given her permission to the hospital, which is ridiculous. Um, aside from that, it, it really, from the article, it seemed that, that she didn't understand what was happening in the process. It seemed very much that, that she was kind of like pushed through the, the entire process. This, you know, Chaim Nissel was just telling her things to do. She was being given- That's the vice provost, correct? Yeah, um, who, who at the time was the Title IX coordinator for the school and dean of students. Um, and and I mean, one of the things that that's considered basic best practices is when someone comes forward with an allegation of sexual assault in the school, you want to make sure that the process is trauma informed and that the person who's coming forward with the allegation is safe and feels safe and has someone to advocate for them. Um, so typical best practice would be if you come in with a complaint to the Title IX office, you're immediately given a victim's advocate. And that wasn't even made available to her. It wasn't even presented to her as an option. So she's being like ferried through this system, being told to sign an NDA that she doesn't understand. Um, an investigation is done that's incomplete. And she has no idea what's flying through this. And it doesn't seem like she was given access to, to any resources. The school's later claims seem to be, well, we have a counseling center she could have gone to. That's not good enough. When someone's going through a trauma like this, they don't necessarily have the presence of mind to be aware of everything you want them to be aware of, which is why we typically recommend at Zaka that someone who's going through this, any type of complaint, whether it's criminal or Title or Title IX, that they have a victim's advocate with them to advocate for them, to be their voice in their interests, because whether you're reporting to police or whether you're reporting to a school, their interests aren't necessarily the same as your interests. It's important to, to have a, a victim's advocate. And that's one of the most troubling things about this. And what happened? And by the way, I, I'm not asking either of you. I'm asking both of you. I don't know who knows what. So whoever knows the answer to any given question, please feel free just to jump in. I want to be very careful with the way that I frame these questions, because if I say a question in a certain way, it might be assuming certain things about any given party, and that wouldn't be fair. Part of the issue here is that perhaps because of the NDA, we simply don't know what was really happening in the minds of those in the Title IX office when they asked her to sign this non-disclosure agreement. It could be that it was a cover-up. It could be that it was something innocuous. It could be they thought they were doing the right thing for the right reasons. We just don't know. Let me ask you then, as best as you know, what is the reason that she signed this non-disclosure agreement? I personally don't know the reason why she signed the NDA, but from what, what I've heard and what I've seen and from what I know about the story, it's it's not about whenever or not she knew what she was doing or not. Like she was told and she was led to believe, oh, if you do this, we're going to help you. And at the time, like that's what she was thinking. I just want to get help. She's been through this traumatic experience. And, and as Asher said, like she's not given all the facts and resources. So when you're in a situation like that and you just don't know, like, of course, she's going to go. Not that she should have done that. I don't think she would have chosen to if she like knew what she could have done. 
but as he said like she was put pushed into doing this and she was never advocate for it I don't think she she just didn't know and she was just so focused on like getting this fixed and getting the help that she needed yeah, that, that's the same impression I got. I mean, she said on the Jeff Lax interview that the school basically told her that, you know, you're not going to be able to, this is not going to be able to progress. We aren't going to be able to give you the findings or, or progress in any way in this investigation until you sign this NDA. And that coupled with the fact that she didn't seem to understand what she was signing, you know, meant that when I initially spoke to her, she didn't seem to understand what she had signed, which is a very big problem. This is a legally binding document that could cause her serious, serious problems if she breaches it, unless she has adequate representation. You know, this is not something anybody should should be entering into lightly. It's not something they should be signing without understanding it. But as as, as Schiffer said, like in that moment, you're, you're just trying to get help. You aren't thinking about the legal ramifications of the thing that you're signing. You just need help. One of the most outrageous things I've heard in this entire sordid story is the very fact that it sounds a lot like, from her presentation, signing the NDA was presented as a prerequisite for anything getting done. And once it was signed, it was presented as, well, now the story is over and there's nothing we can do about it. Is that, in fact, how the NDA functioned? The NDA itself doesn't actually cover what she experienced. It doesn't cover the fact of her reporting it. Um, what it does cover is because the process was happening in a remote setting rather than in person, generally speaking, the way it would work is that while you would meet with both parties, there would be whatever inquiry was done, there would be an investigation, there would be some materials that were uh, uh, created as a result of the investigation, each student would be brought in to, to review them and then offer another uh, you, you know, another another statement or, or a follow up or whatever, and then the investigate and, and then the matter would be adjudicated and closed. This would happen in person, and neither party would be allowed to keep any of the documents that were a product of the investigation. Because this was happening in a remote setting, and the school was going to be transmitting these electronically, and they wanted to make sure that that each party wouldn't keep the the, the documents or, re, or retransmit the documents. So they sent out they sent out an NDA basically saying, you know, we're going to be sending you these documents. These are the people that you're allowed to discuss it with. Any of those people who you discuss it with are subject to the NDA, which you are liable for. If they breach it, they are not allowed to retransmit any of these documents. The documents have to be destroyed within five days. And if any single one of them, any single one of them who you showed this document to, you yourself or any of them, discuss any of what you saw in any of these documents that you didn't know prior to being shown these documents, you may be liable for for, for breach of, of this non-disclosure agreement. And what would that mean? What would that mean practically if practically, someone did breach it? Practically speaking, let's say let's say the victim's parents were were telling you know, a friend in shul about what they saw in the, the report. And that got back to the school. Uh, the school could then sue for breach of the non-disclosure agreement and collect damages. And and what's crazy about this is that, like, you know, the school may present this as a reasonable path to take during a pandemic. You know, the process is different. We had to protect these documents. We would generally protect them in person. But this NDA actually goes a lot further than, than the process usually would in person. In person, both parties would be invited to look at the materials, and then they wouldn't have to sign an NDA. They'd be free to discuss whatever they saw in those reports with whoever they wanted. Right now, each party is barred from from even talking about what they saw in the the report. And obviously, there's more information in the report than they than they each experienced. Uh, 
Um, but but you know the the, the victim in, in this case isn't, for example, able to, to to look at any of the evidence collected by the investigator about the about the abuser, about any I don't know. Maybe the report included a pattern. Maybe it included some background information. Maybe uh, there, there's all sorts of information that could be in any of those materials that she's now not allowed to discuss. When had this happened in person, she would be 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 able to, to discuss it. Okay, does it? preclude her from still going to the police? Does it preclude her from mentioning what her name is? Is that the reason for her anonymity? Is that what's also included in the NDA? No, uh, no. So so I don't think her identity is covered in the NDA. She is allowed to talk about it with police. Um, it, it's not actually legal to, to, to sign an NDA that's, I mean, it's legal to, I guess, to sign it, but it's not legally enforceable. Any NDA that, that that tries to bar someone from engaging in the criminal process isn't legally enforceable. So that they couldn't do. The last clause of the uh, of the uh, of the NDA says nothing in this agreement prohibits you from obtaining the assistance or support of family members, counselors, therapists, clergy, doctors, attorneys, or similar resources. Nor does it prevent you from discussing the incident itself and your experiences. So it only covers the the materials in the the report, not the event itself. What you're saying now, Asher, in truth, does mitigate a bit of what I said before in terms of the mendacity of having her sign this NDA. I still think that it was completely unacceptable for numerous reasons, as you mentioned. On the other hand, this NDA does not preclude her from going to the police. It does not preclude her from discussing the situation. It doesn't stop the entire investigation in its tracks, which is what I thought it might have done. It sounds much more that this NDA is preventing her from collecting certain types of evidence or from talking about certain types of evidence that were available. It's still not okay, but it is different than what I thought before. I want to ask you both about a certain possibility maybe in YU's defense as well. Is it possible that somebody in the YU Title IX office made her sign this incorrectly, but once it was signed, that sort of tied the hands of the administration to go further in dealing with it? Is that possible or is that absurd? I mean, I think anything's possible. I personally don't know from what it sounds like. It just sounds like, you know, the situation where the institution wanted to sweep this under the rug because, again, like, it was just it's public knowledge that the rapist was on the YU basketball team and that makes him like a like a person of interest for the school like whatever but my point is he's not just some regular students like oh he's a regular student he's he's not bringing anything to the school he's on the the YU max at the time they had the longest streak in basketball victories you know a lot they do a lot of social media with the team they do a lot of content with them and, you know, to have them on the team, it's a really big deal. So to the students, the alumni, our impressions have been, you know, it's to protect the PR. Listen, this is this is a YU NDA. If YU decided after it was signed to tear it up there, they, they can do that. I mean, the the you take a look at what happened with the not that the comparison is one to one here but you take a look at what happened with the catholic church after the passage of the child victims act there there were the the church used to sort of like pay people off with a little bit of therapy a little bit of money and then make them sign an nda at some point they realized that you can't enforce this nda without it becoming more of a pr problem for them and they, and, and they said we are not going to enforce our ndas and the reason why i bring that up is because like if you're the party that's insisting on the nda then you can just as easily tear it up. This isn't a necessary part of the Title IX process. It's not a requirement by law of the Title IX process. They could tear this up just as easily as they printed it. I'm going to read another quote from the article. I want to get your reaction to it, Shifra. 
She said that after she had already signed the NDA and an investigation supposedly occurred, quote, Finally, I received an answer, but not the one I was looking for. Vice Provost Nissel's office gave me the news that, quote, It's usually hard to prove something happened when only two people were there. This left me in complete shock. My heart sank. My world was turned upside down. I had developed a sense of hope that after months of worrying and pain, I might finally be validated and heard, but I was not. The same people who had constantly encouraged me to go through this painful process, all the while promising that I would feel safe again, seemed to have pretty much known from the start that nothing would come from it. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think of this claim? What's your feeling about it, that it's very difficult to know who's right when there are only two witnesses to what happened? Honestly, I think that whole situation is completely devastating because when you think about it, you have this atrocious thing happen to you. You go to the institution that you're told is supposed to be helping you and you make yourself so vulnerable. I mean, a rape kit, like the pictures, like I remember back in September, like the victim didn't want people like obsessing over the rape kit because of just how triggering it is. And then after going through all of that, the support system that was supposed to help you just completely tells you, sorry, we can't help you sign the NDA. You can't talk about this. It's completely devastating. And it's one of the reasons like I wanted to like to help as much as I could, because um, I think the survivor, she is so strong with what she's doing. She's strong to talk about it on the podcast, to write the article, to still be going. I think it's very inspirational of her to, you know, do what she can, but not everyone is that strong there. Imagine this happens to a girl who isn't as strong. Imagine, not just a girl, your parent. Imagine you have a child who goes through something that's severe. And I don't know if what the parents know. Your child goes through rape and they go through this process. They're told, sorry, we can't help you. And they're not as strong. And then all of a sudden, God forbid, they take their own life. And then you're the parent and you have no idea what happened. Or you're the friend or you're the family member. It's completely devastating. And it's to the point, it's a pikuach nefesh issue. People are taking their lives because of rape and such is all the time. One of the survivors says Chaim Walder killed herself because people were ce- celebrating him. And I can't live in a world with that. I, I can't, it's very hard to support an institution that lets that go on. Again, I am just so happy that like this survivor, she's doing whatever she can. And, you know, she's, stay, she's as strong as she could be. Not everyone is that strong. And, and, what, and what happens if that happens? What's the school going to do? Say they're sorry? I'm sorry to use the term outrageous again, but the phrase that it's usually hard to prove something happened when only two people were there. Excuse me, there was a rape kit. There were pictures of bruises on her neck, as I understand it. What should Yeshiva University have done? Had everything gone as it should have gone in a properly executed investigation, let's put it this way, in a Torah institution the way we hope it should be run, what should have happened? First of all, they should have requested the kit. They should have done their re- their homework and their research and did everything right. They should, they should have provided her an advocate. Asha would be saying the same thing as me. They should have t- taken accountability. They should have provided her. They shouldn't have just told her, oh, go to the counseling center. Honestly, I think they should have provided her with counseling that's outside of the of YU because I believe it would it'd be a little bit of a conflict of interest for her to even go to the counseling center. And they they should have gave back to her. They should have helped her. They should have kicked this guy out, out of YU. They don't need to make it public that he's out of YU. They don't need to write an article about, hey, so-and-so is kicked out and he's rapist. They don't need to do it because that's not what this is about. This is about helping her and doing the right thing. 
you know, this isn't even the first sexual assault case Bodies has dealt with. They've been dealing with sexual assault since the 80s with Finkelstein. What has changed? Yeah, I, I would say that the point that, you know, two people in a room, you know, there's this really infuriating phrase that people use. It, it, and it's, it's made its way out of this subject into the common parlance of like, he said, she said. What people don't understand about this is that it's not he said, she said. There's a lot of forms of evidence that don't include video. There's rarely video of any crime, never mind a sexual assault. There are all sorts of forms of evidence that are accepted in a courtroom that don't involve video evidence of any of this happening. First of all, the pictures of the bruises that she took and the rape kit took are evidence. The rape kit is evidence. Outcry witnesses, evidence. Her therapist testimony, evidence. All these things are used all the time in court when these cases actually make it in, which is rare because a lot of people have these attitudes. But there are a lot of things that are considered evidence in sexual assault cases that don't involve photo or video evidence of the actual rape happening. And it's just infuriating when people say, oh, well, there's nothing we could do. How the hell are we supposed to know? We weren't in the room. That's what all the other evidence is for. They had access to it and they didn't ask for it. I want to ask about a certain theory that's been suggested by many people. Schiffer, you referenced it earlier. And I wonder if it really is a reasonable assumption. People are saying that YU is covering up this case of rape because of the basketball team. The perpetrator is a member of the basketball team. And the YU basketball team famously had a 50-game winning streak at the time, the longest winning streak in college basketball. And... Therefore, in order to protect that wonderful PR coming in from the basketball team, YU especially didn't want this coming out. The reason that I wonder about that is that this winning streak went on through December, but the article by the victim and the commentator was written in August, long before the streak was nearly as impressive. So is that really a reasonable thing to assume that the reason for the cover-up, assuming that it is being covered up, I don't want to assume motives, but assuming that something's being covered up, that YU's doing it to protect the basketball team? Or is it more likely that YU simply doesn't want this on their conscience to say that a religious university, a Torah university, has a rapist in its midst? Forget the basketball team. Just anyone doing this sort of thing. That's the problem. Not that that's a good motive either. Of course not. But I'm curious if the common narrative about the basketball team is really accurate. What do you think? Honestly, I think it's a mix of both. Like, I... I Obviously, like an institution's not going to want to have anything like this because not just YU, but any institution like this is it's terrible PR for them. But with him being on the basketball team, that that makes him like an important student to YU. Not to say that no other students are important, but there are key students that, you know, very big name students. But the point is, there are there are students who, you know, YU knows who they are. There's students that they don't. And between you and me like I've been in a situation with a, not a rape but I've had a situation with a with a student thankfully it ended well but it ended well because a mix of two things first of all at the time like I'm this social media person you know I could and I didn't have to sign an NDA so I could have done whatever I wanted with that information and second of all the student who did this he wasn't on the basketball team he wasn't on student council like yeah, okay, yeah, he goes to school, but it's... it's a, He's easily disposable, to put it in very crass terms. Yeah, yeah, I, I hate to say it, but according to the university, he's disposable. Because, you know, when certain students, like when the head of student council all of a sudden is kicked out of school, the commentator's going to talk about it, the observer's going to talk about it, all the moms in Teaneck are going to talk about it. And it's just, and it's going to reach everyone because the Orthodox bubble and the Yeshiva League is small. 
But when a student who, you know, he goes to school, he does his work and he make he makes a mistake, but, you know, he's not considered one of the student leaders, when he's not a student leader like this, then it's easier for the school to do something about it because it doesn't leave a mark. I want to read something to you from an article in The Atlantic by Emily Yaffe. It's an article that came out in 2017 called The Uncomfortable Truth About Campus Rape Policy. She wrote a series of articles about Title IX. And I don't want to go through her specific argument, but I want to mention one thing which really relates to our case. This is a particular case that happened at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And she's talking about a certain claim. And whether it's true or not, I don't have to get into. The implication is that the person, the woman making the claim, had a spurious claim, that it wasn't necessarily such a strong claim, that probably whatever happened seemed consensual. Nevertheless, this is what I want you to hear. RM, that's the uh, the one who's making the claim of the victim, went to the dean of students and filed a complaint against the perpetrator. She also reported him to the Amherst police. The police investigated and closed the case with no charges filed. On January 12, 2015, the perpetrator got an email from a school administrator informing him that a very serious allegation had been lodged against him and that until a hearing was held, he was subject to interim restrictions. He could not contact the victim. He could visit no dormitories other than his own. He was limited to eating at a single dining hall, and he was forbidden from entering the student union, etc., etc. And these restrictions became even more strict as time went on. And this clearly demonstrates what Title IX entitles a university administration to do in order to separate the victim of a sexual assault or even a purported sexual assault from the perpetrator. Now compare that to the YU victim as she described what happened to her on the Jeff Lax program when she asked to be forcibly separated from the perpetrator. And the university said they could only do that with his permission as well, with the rapist's permission as well. And it just seems so unusually backward. How could it be? We see Title IX, if anything, should allow them to say, if nothing else, if nothing else, you can stay as far away from him as you want. We will enforce your separation and enforce separation of the two of you. The university wouldn't even do that without his permission. Can you explain how this could happen other than a blatant and obvious abdication of university responsibility to its students or even worse? I think it's completely outrageous. And um, uh, those actions, those should have been taken in terms of safety for both for both of them for, for more her than him but it's also in the school's best interest to separate them so i don't understand why the university would even want to be like oh if he says he's okay with it it it, it just i i can't i'm confused by it well i mean this kind of dovetails with the last question that you asked and and, and i've this is not the first case of a sexual assault at yu that i've kind of had some involvement with. I've spoken to a number of people who have experienced sexual assault at YU and have experienced the reaction that YU had. Um, and unfortunately, it seems, and this is my impression, I'm not stating this as fact, it's speculation, but it's it's, it's my impression that, that YU's attitude, and, and I'm basing this not only on the experiences that, that people have told me, but based on the way they structured their Title IX office by basically just slapping together a Title IX office full of people who have other jobs at YU and not actually putting any care or thought into it. Um, and, and designating any people whose sole job it was to, to administer the, the Title IX office. So that, coupled with the reports I've gotten in the past, gives me the general impression that in, in, in many different ways, there are disconnects between the student body and, and the administration. And this is one of them. The YU doesn't seem to, to care about this issue much, because as far as they're concerned, premarital sex either doesn't happen or shouldn't happen. So if a rape happens, like, 
I, listen, it's a problem that we have to deal with, but this shouldn't have happened in the first place because what the hell are you doing? Except in this case, the victim said on the on, on the Jeff Lax program, she had made it very clear to to the you know alleged rapist before they, they went out that she had no intention of going into his apartment, that he had tricked her into coming up to his apartment by asking her to, 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 to help him carry something up. And I think that this general attitude that I believe the YU the the YU administration has towards things that happen on every college campus, whether they're religious or not, including premarital sex consensually and sexual assault, like get your head out of the sand. This stuff is going to happen. You're running a college. Of course, it's going to happen. Of course, sex is going to happen. Of course, sexual assault is going to happen. It's not a blemish against an institution that said that 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 said necessarily that sexual assault happens. Unfortunately, there are people who are predators. What's a black mark against an institution is how they respond to it if they respond poorly. And and one of the 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 interesting things is that like I, I get questions all the time from from people about institutional cover-ups or mishandlings of abuse, and people just don't understand for the life of them like why an institution is motivated to cover something up. It doesn't make sense from a logical standpoint to people on the outside, because as far as they're concerned, like bad stuff happens. This is just a fact of life. Bad stuff happens, right? If an institution handles it in the correct way, it reflects well on the institution. If they handle it poorly, it will eventually reflect poorly on them because the cover-up is going to come out and the cover-up is always worse than the crime. Mm -hmm. So people don't understand why this happens. And the reason why is because they don't see the inner workings either because it's the person who, you know, in the case of Baruch Lanner, is, you know, the, the guy was good at fundraising. He was very charismatic. He was very popular. The same was true of Yidi Coco in, in the Tertimima case. The same is, 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 is true of why the Bolton the community in Baltimore is bending over so far backwards to raise so much money for Shmuel Krawatsky, who's accused of sexually assaulting a number of boys. It's because there's always some other reason, but like it, it doesn't actually make sense why institutions cover it up. Handle it correctly. It doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to find in favor of the person making the, the accusation, but there's a process that has to be followed and that process has to be sound has to be based on best practices. It has to be trauma-informed. And why you doesn't seem to have put any care into this. You know, that inclination, as you say, Asher, to cover up, we see it in so many different walks of life and so many different institutions. If we look back at Watergate, we're talking about something that happened almost 50 years ago. Watergate, that was exactly as you said it, where we learned that the cover-up is usually worse than the crime. Obviously here, I don't want to say the cover-up is worse than rape, but at the same time, the cover-up ends up almost always backfiring. Whether we're talking about the child abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, whatever it might be, the cover-up almost always is later exposed in a way which does damage the institutions. And it seems almost embedded in the DNA of so many institutions to try to hide something that makes them look bad, even though history has shown time and again that incurring the short-term damage of admitting something bad is still better than hiding it and then inevitably having it revealed later on, which causes much more serious damage in the long term. That's only talking about on a utilitarian level. There's also the moral element, the moral imperative of looking out for victims and telling the truth. Shifra, let me ask you about what should be done. I know you're an activist in terms of trying to fix what mistakes YU has made. Can you talk about some of the specific reforms you would like to see in Yeshiva University that arise both from this case and from the general problems that we've seen? Asher mentioned there have been other cases as well. What would you like to see changed at Yeshiva University? First of all, I think one thing that needs to be changed is the mindset regarding this, because I think this is an, not just an institution in YU, but an institution in all these institutions and all these Jewish environments, because there's this idea, as Asher said, oh, sex isn't allowed 
it's taboo. If it happened, it shouldn't have happened anyway. But they need to expect that this is going to happen. And there needs to be some sexual responsibility. Like these, the students and the administrations need to know how to handle it. The students, first of all, I believe, for honestly, I, I went to Jewish day school all my life. I went to YU and I went to seminary. I don't remember ever really learning about the rape of Dina. And I, I think a little bit of that is connected to this. First of all, the students aren't taught that. The teachers aren't comfortable talking about it. And the administrations make it so hard because they don't want sex to be attached to their school name, you know, because YU has a reputation. They're the modern Orthodox yeshiva. They have donors. They have people who want to send their kids there. They have an image. But when something like this happens, it's no, it's about bikuach nefesh. It's about safety. It's about having an advocate, which Asher mentioned, which they totally need. It's about having someone who's dedicated to Title IX, who cares about the students first and the university second. I understand that might be a conflict of interest when you work at a university, but why you just, this has been a long-term thing, even without the sexual assault. There's an aura uh, this energy where students don't feel that the university cares. And this is one of the ways it shows through. You know, you can take the, the kids to American Dream for Hanukkah. That's all great and all. But what happens when there's another sexual assault and they make them sign an NDA? I do wonder about what you're mentioning in terms of not really dealing with cases of rape in Tanakh, whether it's mm-hmm. the case of Dina or Amnon Tamar. Right. What I'm saying with that example is that these institutions, they don't take it seriously from the first day where we where we go into kindergarten. They don't take it seriously in middle school or high school. They don't take it seriously in college. The administrators never teach us. The administrators never learn from it. It's so taboo that they're like, oh, we're just going to sweep this under the rug. Because again, this is not the fact. This is just what it seems to me. It's too uncomfortable for them to deal with. And it's easier just to hide and say they're sorry than it is to actually deal with it correctly the first time. Perhaps this is reductionist. I don't know. I sometimes am worried that the lack of any sexual education in some high schools, I'm sure some religious high schools do have sexual education, but in some there isn't, the lack of education in some of these high schools about sex might give the mistaken impression to students that there's no difference between different types of premarital sex. It's all forbidden. And the consequence of that is that students might not realize or internalize that while, according to Jewish law, premarital sex is a sore, it's forbidden, there's a big difference between consensual premarital sex and non-consensual sex, premarital or marital. One, the first one, is a prohibition according to halakha. The second one has an additional category of a moral or ethical evil. So I sometimes get worried that when we don't teach enough about sex, that this is one of the unintended consequences. Perhaps, Shiva, you can talk about some systems that are in place in YU, in addition to this educational issue, that you would like to see changed. But I would like, honestly, what I would like to see changed, I think, first of all, I think with their training, they recently did a training and orientation regarding sex, not just sexual assault, but I don't know the, the, the words for it, so forgive me, but they recently have been doing more training in that matter, so I think that's a good step in the right direction, but I think I think there needs to be an advocate there to help the student along the way, because this is not going to be the, the, the last sexual assault that happens on campus. Unfortunately, I wish it was. And I think that everyone, the students and the administrators, they need to learn the severity of these instances. They need to learn, you know, like, okay, sex is going to happen, but there's a difference between, you know, premarital sex and rape. 
And it just, it really needs to resonate with the students how bad this is so they don't do it. And it needs to resonate with the administration how bad it is so they can protect the kids from it the first time and handle it the correct way the first time. Like again, the administration hasn't taken this seriously for years. I don't think, like I, again, this is just my opinion. This isn't the fact. I don't think they realize how bad it is and how traumatizing and how it affects the victim and it's just how devastating it could be and just there's lack of care because of it. Okay, Asher, how about you? What systems would you like to see changed at YU? And maybe I could even extend it to say in Jewish institutions in general, we see it's not just Yeshiva University. This is happening in many Orthodox contexts. What needs to change systematically? So in addition to what Shifra said, um, I think that that it's important to address YU first and then the general system second. Um, it's it's important not just to allow YU to say, okay, mea culpa, we're gonna, you know, we're we're gonna institute these reforms going forward and then everything's fine, because there there's there's very clearly a problem that led up to to this point. And it's important not to let that slide. I think that there should be a retro a, a retrospective independent investigation, as independent as such an investigation could be with a commitment at the outset to release the full report as opposed to what they did in 2014 uh, with the investigation that they did into into what happened with George Finkelstein, they thought at the time that they were going to be avoiding a lawsuit. So they had a report done and they presented a public version and then it had some some concessions in there. Then there was a private version that was compiled by the law firm that they hired to do the investigation that was presented orally to, to the board of YU. The actual report was never handed over so that the oral conversation was protected by attorney client privilege and the report itself was protected by by the by its protected work product so it, it, it couldn't be uh, brought up in discovery or subpoenaed or anything like that I think that they have to commit at the outset to to an independent investigation to see what went wrong and they have to commit at the outset to release the report in full they need to provide advocates as Schiffer said they need to directly provide resources and not just say oh we have a counseling center ideally a partnership with something like safe Safe Horizon, maybe Mount Sinai that has pro- programs for uh, survivors of sexual assault w- would be great. Um, uh, the trainings that are happening are great. To address the, the problem in a more systemic way across all of our institutions, I think the number one thing, and I get this a lot, is like, what, do we have a higher prevalence, this, this, this question I get a lot, and it really bothers me, do we have a higher prevalence of sexual abuse and sexual assault and sexual violence than the general population? Do we have more of a problem than the secular world? And I think that what people don't understand is that it's, it's hard to get prevalence rates in our community in many ways, but the one thing we can say definitively is that in any environment where there's a sense of impunity, that's where you know the incidence rate's gonna be higher. So if, if abusers know that they could abuse and get away with it, they're gonna do it more often. If they know that the culture is against them in general and in favor of protecting children and students and, 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 and anybody within whatever system you're, 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 you're talking about, there's much less of a likelihood that people are going to want to predate in that, that community. So, you know, these reforms at YU are great, but I think that, that in general, we have to create a culture that, that is protective of people, that makes it clear that if you come forward, we're going to take you seriously. We're going to give you the, the, the help that you need. That if an abuser is found in our midst, we're not going to enable them or cover up for them or, or uh, oppress the victim or harass them in, in any way or, or tolerate any backlash. We're going to protect the victim and we're going to throw that abuser out the way we used to with, with uh, victims, unfortunately. 
And I think that one thing that needs to happen, and I think Schiffer kind of touched on this, is that, I mean, I think this should be in high schools, but if it's not going to happen in high school, it should definitely happen in seminary and college. You need consent-based sex ed. It has to happen. It has to happen. And, and even, if, even if these institutions are, are, are thinking, well, premarital sex is not something that we want to encourage, and they have this ridiculous, outdated notion that if you teach people sex ed, that they're going to just immediately jump on each other. Like, it's ridiculous. First of all, Consent is important in the context of marriage as well. I can't tell you how many cases I've dealt with of, of spousal rape happening because, because the chassan wasn't, I mean, in some cases it was because the chassan wasn't taught about consent and, you know, was given the impression that like, you know, marriage is consent and why would your wife ever say no? And, and in some cases, I've actually heard cases where a chassan teacher has told, has told a guy, if your wife isn't going to give you sex, force her a few times to get her used to it. Yeah, I've heard that as well. It's unbelievable. Yeah, even in the context of marriage, consent-based sex education is very important. And and you know what? Outside the context of marriage, let's all grow up, okay? Let's all grow up. We can teach our values and we can espouse them and we can try to instill them in our children, but people are people and they're going to do what they do, right? And and you know what? You, you, have to, you have to just grow up and accept that. If you're the administration of YU, if you're the administration of a high school, if you're the administration of anything, grow up. People have sex. If they're going to do it, they should at least be safe about it. They should at least know what, what protection is. They should know what STDs are and how to avoid them. And they should know, especially, especially what consent and a proper sexual ethic is, because, because that's not taught in our communities at all. And it's so important. It's so important. And not just to, to teach people not to rape, because rapists are going to rape. It's also about like giving people, giving people, giving our, our, our young women, but also our young men also, because, you know, sexual assault isn't just a one gender problem. Giving everybody who experiences any sort of sexual violence, just telling them, like, this shouldn't happen to you. You have a right to not be sexually assaulted. You have a right to grant consent before someone sexually engages with you. And that's not a message that a lot of people have. And if they don't know that they have a right to, to, to give or revoke consent and that it should be affirmative, then when they get assaulted, they blame themselves. They blame themselves. They think it's something I did. Maybe I indicated that I gave consent. Maybe I didn't scream loudly enough. Maybe I didn't fight hard enough. And that's such a terrible attitude for people to, to, to have. And the reason they have that is because it's drilled into them. First of all, it's your fault if, if it happened, especially if you're a woman, you probably did something to, to, to deserve it. Maybe you weren't sneeze enough or whatever, but also they're never told. They're never told that you have a right to consent to your sexuality and you have a right to revoke that consent and people have to wait for that consent. And if they don't, then they're doing something wrong and that has to change. Grow up, teach it, sex happens. It's hard to top what you just said, Asher, in terms of importance. That message is the most important thing we've heard today, I think, perhaps. This idea that we must teach the idea of consent. I want to ask a final question in terms of the institutional issue at Yeshiva University. I'll ask both of you this question. When you talk about institutions that feel immune, those are the institutions that are most likely to have issues of cover-ups, have issues where sexual assault happens with impunity. Do you think that the Roshay Yeshiva should get involved in this case and come out publicly and talk about it? I don't know if they have. I'm not someone from YU. I am not part of the institution. Would involvement of the Roche Yeshiva in this issue be a benefit or is it beside the point and wouldn't really change anything significantly? What do you think? I think it would 
be a good idea because I mean I don't know if it has happened or not because that's just something that I I don't know at the top of my head. I don't know either. Again, I, yes, right. But I think something like that, where you when you're condemning your own university for that, it shows that you have a sense of responsibility for this. And I think again how you handle the situation when you handle it with with morality and responsibility you say this was a terrible thing that's happened and we don't want it to happen again we're taking steps and then you actually take steps so it doesn't happen again it's it's being a a, a mensch you you don't just sweep this under the rug and say you're sorry because you have to yeah i mean i don't have much to 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 add to what Schiffer said listen if you want to claim if why you loves fall, falling back on the idea that it's a religious college it's not but it loves falling back on that idea it's not but it likes saying it is right so if you're going to if you're going to to project that image that you're like the flagship institution of modern orthodoxy and not just reits but the entire university um, then, then yeah, absolutely, the Russia yeshiva should 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 get involved and maybe have a little bit of a moral backbone. I mean, the Russia yeshiva li- like getting <laughs> maybe I'm stepping in it a little little too much and I'm overstepping what I should be saying. But the Russia yeshiva like getting involved in what YU does anyway and telling them what they can and can't do. Maybe they should speak up and and and, and tell YU what to do in this case. Okay, this was such an important episode, and I really thank both of you for coming on and. I also want to thank the anonymous victim. She's remained anonymous by choice, but she gave you permission to talk about the NDA and uh, her bravery is really astounding. So I will thank her through you and I thank both of you for coming on today. Schiffer Lindenberg and Asher Lowy, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.